24-hour news cycles keep everything in crisis. We have an unceasing stream of crises, or so it seems. I'm at this point amused by how network news starts each night. It's very predictable. It'll happen again tomorrow night, 6.30 our time. We have breaking news as we come on the air. Of course they do. They keep everyone all stirred up. We are now into COVID reruns. This crisis metastasizes with now the Omicron variant. And what is being said about it is interesting to me, and I'm not minimizing anything, but uh, the Omicron variant is such that the symptoms are very slight and it can be passed very easily and nobody knows and people pass in and out of it with no symptoms. Whatever that is, it don't sound too bad, you know, but uh, uh, wow. To think of our globe in this moment, though, honestly, is to think of a place in crisis. Isn't that true? To think of our globe in this moment is to think of uh, an iconic line from a yesteryear in Hollywood. What we have here is a convoy, a seeming convoy of crises, one right after the other, right after the other, right after the other, ceaselessly coming to us. Now you may think that crises are inhospitable to hope, but if you do, you're missing it. It is possible at the self-same time to experience a crisis and to experience great hope. In fact, I have wondered if you're going through what you would call, Eric, I'm, I'm going through a bona fide crisis right now. I've wondered if God wouldn't want to use this service in your life today to encourage you. Uh, hope broke out in a crisis in Bethlehem a long time ago. And here we are this morning celebrating it these many years later. Eric, this feels like a crisis. I don't like this, what we're going through. I'm losing hope. If that's you, you've come on the right morning. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but Christmas got its start in a crisis. We can have Christmas in a crisis, and we shall again this year. Hope was actually born in a crisis. There's lots surrounding the birth of Jesus that's in crisis mode. And piece by piece, we're going to unpack that this month. That's what the insert in the bulletin talks about. Next week, we'll look at what a crisis this was for Mary. If I have the order, am I remembering the order, right? And then the week after that, the Lord willing, we'll look at what a crisis this was for Joseph, each a different kind of a crisis. We'll look forward to our Christmas Eve service here at 4 o'clock, and then finish out on the 26th, the day after Christmas here in these weeks that lie ahead. But we'll be unpacking this idea that actually Christmas was born in a crisis. 
we are introducing Christmas to unparalleled hope. But the hope comes in a fascinating moment of struggle and crises. We are brought to unbridled freedom in coming to know Jesus, even at the self-same time as realizing that this whole narrative is a crisis in and of itself. The passage before us this morning will introduce us to this theme. Come with me to Galatians 4. Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote in the first century. We've gone through it recently here at church, so we'll not take a deep dive into Galatians 4. But what we will do is we'll look this morning at verses 3, 4, and 5, which speak of Christmas. Let's look at it together. Galatians 4, 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul in the first century wrote this to a group of believers in Jesus. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hear the word of the Lord. This passage makes very clear that right in the middle of a crisis, we can come to understand hope. I want to go two different directions this morning. First, I want to reinforce this thesis, and we'll be looking at it all month. Uh, it's detailed in the visual that Jay made for the series. Hope born in a crisis. I want to prove that to you with point number one. And secondly then, Eric, okay, if, if Christ's coming is hope in the middle of a crisis, why is Christ's coming Hope. Why does it bring us to hope? So that's our plan of attack this morning. First, hope was born in a crisis. Look at Galatians 4, 3, 4, and 5. Quite more than Jesus was born in Bethlehem at that first Christmas, hope got its start here as well. Now let's note two things that are true under this thesis point, which we'll be working on all month. Hope was born in a crisis. First, the first century world was in crisis. There's a time phrase in Galatians 4.4 that says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, what about this time made it full and right and ripe for Jesus' coming. What was it about that time? We need to understand the moment. What do you mean, the fullness of time? Please note first, most basically, the apostle frames Christmas not as an accident in time, but the culmination of a thoughtful plan by God. It was timely it was right on schedule. It went off as God wanted it, 
to go off and as he had planned. The first century was made providentially ready for hope with a confluence of factors. Several factors made this the right time. They came together in a confluence, a, a, a series of things that come together that make the whole. Well, what were those factors? Number one, in the first century, there peaked an expectation of a deliverer. Uh, humanity has forever attached itself to saviors, little s, uh, trying to find people to follow, uh, personages that would provide for them everything they've wanted. It seems that there was a particular appetite for that in the first century. Uh, and it came out of the, uh, uh, what was going on in the Roman Empire, some old standard and staple religions were dying out in influence. The people weren't paying any attention to the myths and the, the, the stories that had held such sway before. I mean, the Romans believed that Caesar was God. Uh, but the Roman Empire in time came to realize well, that's interesting. God dies once in a while, and we get another God that replaces him. Um, so maybe this Caesar's God stuff is not all it's cracked up to be. The old religions were dying. The old philosophies seemed empty and in particular powerless to change men's hearts. Now, you know the Greeks, they were the thinkers. Alexander the Great takes over the world. They were the great thinkers Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. The Romans were the great builders, and they just let all the Greeks do all the thinking for them. So they just brought the Greek mind into the Roman world. And so the Greek philosophy got a lot of play. If you read the literature, the real fancy word, Hellenized. Uh, the Greek ideas uh, just were folded into the Roman Empire and ruled the day. And the great philosophies that had been spouted... Uh, now for 300 years. But in the first century, people noted that uh, this school of Greek thought, this school of Greek thought, this school of Greek thought, well, what is it actually doing in the lives of the people on the ground in real life situations in families, at work, as neighbors? What actual different? Is it doing anything or is it just a bunch of sophistry, philosophy that doesn't matter. In this vacuum, then, strange, new, uh, mystery religions were breaking out. I'd call it the I've got a secret religion. And it was esoteric experiences of, an, we might call it the close encounter, the third kind kind of religions that were breaking out. In this milieu, Nobody noticed it, but Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But it was at a particular time, and you remember the Jewish people since Deuteronomy chapter 18 when Moses, under the inspiration of God, wrote that someday a deliverer is going to come, and the Jews looked forward to the Messiah, and then everybody carried the Jews off and beat them up. But this idea that a coming deliverer 
will eventually get here is sprinkled on through the nations. And so there's a little bit of that in there. It becomes the exact right time for this to all work. Further, the Roman Empire really served God. Now, they were a bunch of yeoman workers that, uh, and we still have their arches around. Uh, some of the blocks that they laid, the bridges that they made. It's amazing to think all these centuries still around. Well, the Romans built the roads. They were builders. The Greeks were thinkers. The Romans built roads. Uh, you think Eisenhower did a good job in the 50s launching the interstate system in America? Well, yeah, he did, but he didn't have anything on the Romans. They had roads over every major city connecting them all in the Roman Empire. Now, this becomes advantageous because as soon as the Caesars got finished connecting all the empire with roads, Jesus is born. Because God wants to use those roads to have Jesus' followers. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Use those roads to take the good news of great joy for all people to the ends of the earth. So the Romans were... Now, the other thing that the Romans were good for is peace. Well, there are several ways to make peace. You make it with detente. You sit down and eat caviar and say, let's, you know, have peace. I guess Baptist people wouldn't smoke a peace pipe, but, you know, whatever. You know, you, you make peace. That's one way. But then there's a the Roman way. You get out the sword, and he sticks it next to your neck, and he says, is it okay if we have peace or not? Because I'm going to lop off your head if it's not. And they said, you know what? I think peace is an extraordinarily good idea. So you have, and here's the Latin phrase, the Pax Romana. You have peace all over the Roman Empire. Now, peace is helpful because it creates economic stability. It creates social stability. And so you have this moment. The interstate highways are open. There's peace everywhere. There's ferment in the area of the anxiousness of men's hearts. And all the old staple confidences are gone because they're not working. Into these dark streets shineth the everlasting life. Jesus is born in the fullness of time. <coughs> now, the second thing to note underneath this thesis is this. God uses crisis to give hope. Crisis do all sorts of things to us. And if you're going through a crisis, and some of you have been through a crisis, some of you are in the midst of a crisis, some of you are finished with a crisis, stay tuned, we'll have another one. That's, isn't that life in a broken world? Thank God for the sufficiency of Jesus to walk through them with us. But crises mishandled can be debilitating. The world has been deeply hurt economically by this COVID crisis. But I wish economically was the only way the world had been hurt. Emotionally, the toll that the COVID crisis has wreaked on us has been terrible. Terrible. People have died. Life has been disrupted. Now, one silver lining is that crises 
can make us attentive. Have you ever been awakened in a hard time? Remember, I went to Cedarville back then, college, now university. There's a man who had a local business, and it was a gold mine for him. Everybody ate his pizza. Um, his son took out in a car one night, out a country road, had a wreck and died. It's a tragic death. He and his wife were devastated. My basketball coach and others knew him, began to surround him, and in the middle of that crisis, pointed him to one who could bring eternal hope. And the mom and the dad placed their faith in Jesus. In fact, in the last couple of years, he went home to be at the Lord and died full of hope. And that hope was birthed in a crisis. But he couldn't see his need for Jesus until his confidence in all of those other lesser things was gone. And in that circumstance, he came to Christ. It's interesting what crises do to us. Samuel Johnson, you've heard this before. He, of course, has his famous quip. Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. <laughs> and that's true. Crisis has a way of concentrating the mind. We listen to things that before we wouldn't listen to. We see in a way without the crisis we wouldn't see. Hope came in the darkest moment of the first century in the person of Jesus. Crises actually are a surprising opportunity for hope. Christmas reminds us that a crisis notwithstanding, and here we are, it's a wonderful time to celebrate hope. Well then, Eric, how does the birth of Jesus help? How did Jesus coming in this crisis actually help? The birth of Jesus brought hope. Look at verse 5 of Galatians 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We know Christmas brought the baby Jesus. But do we get that Christmas also brought us great hope? Let's unpack what Christmas brings to our hope with two assertions. Assertion number one. God sent a care package to humanity. God sent a care package to humanity. Look at verse 4. Have you ever received an unexpected package? Jesus was unexpected. Hardly anyone noticed. The shepherds had to be aroused with a special invitation from the angels. Only a few even noticed that the package had arrived. Let me tell you where a really fun place is to go. It's to a mail room at a university. It's a fun place to go because faithful mothers suffering from separation anxiety will put together a care package and mail it off 
to their son or daughter at school. Thinking of them, loving them, missing them, putting in all of their favorite things, whatever those favorite things are, baking those favorite uh, cookies. And, and uh, mothers, if you don't do this, you need to repent and do it. it it's it really delightful. Um, <clears throat> In fact, it's, it's one place that's really fun to go to watch people because when the mail hits, you know, the, they swarm like bees around a hive and they'll get a notice, hey, I got a package. They'll go to the window and they'll hand it the package. It's not uncommon for them to unfurl with opening that package and, you know, take a deep dive with their hand into their favorite mother's chocolate chip cookies or wh whatever it is and really enjoy that. Oh, we all love to receive care packages. What would your mom put in yours? Baked goods, food cards, gift cards, beef jerky, whatever she put in yours, I don't know. Here's what God put in his. It's only five words. But it's all of Christmas right here. God sent forth his son. That's a whole ball of wax. It's all right there. George said, I could hardly find a more succinct summary of the Christian gospel than the expression, God sent his son. Isn't it fascinating? God didn't send an envoy. He didn't send a proxy. He sent himself, fully God, fully man, inseparably united in one person without division, in perfect unity. Great is the mystery of godliness. No other package demonstrated more care. And it was sent with a heart of affection for humanity. Verse 4 speaks of how he was born of a woman. Think of the condescension of our creator who became one of us. Wow. Born of a woman. Have you been around a helpless infant recently? All the glory of Christmas. That the one who spoke and everything came into being was swaddled by his mother and had his diapers changed in Bethlehem. Whatever the renditions of the diapers were in the first century. Fully God, fully man, inseparably united in one person. He entered our doom. He entered our cursed world for us on our behalf to release us from it. He became a curse for us. That's what Paul's described earlier in this very book. He took our condemnation on himself. He entered the tough experience of once Eden. Our world is broken. Once we were Eden. And he entered our world to take us back to Eden and take back anyone who would believe in him and trust in him as their savior. He took our condemnation on himself. You know, there's a phrase, born of a woman, which celebrates the majesty of this incarnation, God becoming man. But there's another phrase, born under the law. What does that mean? Oh, he's certainly born in a Jewish home, born in a kosher home, seeking to be faithful to the law. 
but he was born under the law. The only one who ever perfectly kept the law. He is without sin. So all the law's demands, and anyone who's ever tried to keep the law has flamed out early. We cannot keep the law. We break the law. That's our relationship to the law. But Christ kept the law, fulfilled it perfectly, and offers in his sinless person an unblemished sacrifice for the cross. John the Baptist introduced them like this. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, so that the merits of his life and his faithfulness to the law, which none of us can keep and be accepted by God, the merits of his life become imputed to us as we believe in him so that we acknowledge our sin which he bore on the cross he took the condemnation of our sin in fact that's why he came that's why hope is birth in the middle of this crisis because he offered himself in his body a means for our hell to be satisfied in his sacrifice so that we in believing in him could have the merits of his perfect life be given to us so we trade him our sin for his righteousness that's a good trade and in believing in him, the power of the gospel begins to take hold of us. And we grow toward the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. How's that going? Where you are. The very standard condemning us before God, the law of God, which is a big accuser, which looks at me and says, Eric, you've broken the law of God. And looks at you and says, dear one, you've broken the law of God. The very standard condemning us before God, he perfectly kept. God sent a care package to humanity on this errand to resolve our sin and give us the hope of eternal life. What a care package. Andy and I in the spring of 85 were staging for graduation from Dallas Seminary. We were in our apartment one night. Knock on the door. You had to get buzzed in. Wasn't the best part of East Dallas and had kind of a little security thing. You had to get buzzed in. So we thought, oh, it's somebody. So we just opened the door. Andy opened it, as I recall. There's a stranger there with a bag. Hands us the bag and says, hey, this, this gift's for you. From somebody who believes God's going to use you and your husband in ministry as you finish seminary. And... Uh, you know, we shut the door. We're kind of like, what in the world is this? What? Who was it? I don't know. You ever seen him before? No. Where did this come from? They said they want to be anonymous. We opened the gift. It was an extraordinary gift. And uh, it was like, wow. And we had no idea what it was until we opened the gift. We had no idea of its worth until we started using the gift. And we didn't find out just how extraordinary that moment was, the moment of receipt, until a few years later when we started accruing the benefit of utilizing the very gift that we've been given. It's wonderful to receive Jesus. It's glorious to walk with him. 
and celebrate his sufficiencies that are made known to us along the way as we go forward. There's a sense in which Bethlehem was a knock on the door in the middle of a crisis. And God was saying, this is for you. Behold, this is good news of great joy for all people. The Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Now the gifts in this package, what, what, what's in the package? The gifts in this package are freedom and hope. Look at verse, verses 4 and 5. Now there's a timing issue here in the fullness of time. Now he's just finished talking in Galatians 4, 1 and 2 about a servant when he grows, as a minor, he grows to a major age and he, his status has changed. And then if they bring him into the family, he be, the servant becomes a son. But the rights of inheritance don't come until he reaches majority age. And this is detailed in Jewish law, which these people would have been familiar with. And that's what he's talking about in Galatians 4, 1 and 2. He's talking about how the status is changed from a slave to a son. In the fullness of time, they come to a majority status. How about your life this morning in your heart? Has God brought you here this morning in the fullness of time, in a ripening of your heart, to be able to see with new clarity who Jesus is and the life that he came to bring. Has God brought you here, maybe even in the midst of a crisis or a moment that is really pressing on your spirit, to have you realize afresh the hopefulness of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Hope for marriage, hope for work, hope for relationships that are staggering. Hope through problems. Hope through cancer. Hope through brokenness. Hope through loss. Hope through threats. Jesus Christ brought hope to the world. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Would you like to receive him this morning? Transferring your trust and your ability to be self-righteous enough, give up on that project, we'll never make it. But we don't have to. The perfect one offers the free gift. Back to knocking on the door. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any of you will open up, I will come in to you and sup with you and you with me. Is God introducing himself to you this morning? And knocking on your heart, inviting you to submission and faith. <clears throat> the law, do this, do that, do this, do that, get better, be perfect. It just puts us in prison. There's no freedom there. None at all. There's failure there. But freedom comes in being forgiven. Freedom comes in the gift of righteousness. And it's interesting that this freedom actually then makes us more holy. <laughs> when we receive the gift, then God begins to change us into who he is like. 
The law is just bondage. But God, in Christ, entered the prison house and opened the doors to set us free. The truest form of freedom is to be forgiven, to be released. Isn't freedom captured in the lyrics of In Christ Alone? No guilt in life, no fear in death. Is that you? Now, the most glorious part of this package at Christmas is that this package makes slaves to be sons. He talks about adoption, about being included in God's family. Now, if you read the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, you'll read nothing about adoption. Adoption wasn't a Jewish concept. It's interesting. It was very much embedded in Greek culture, which was carried over and reigned in Roman culture. So in Roman law, there's specified particular things that must be passed through in order for an adoption to be legitimate. And these were followed closely, and everybody was familiar with them. In fact, Julius Caesar, no less, adopted his great-nephew, Octavius. And Octavius later succeeded him as the Caesar. Can you imagine who Octavius was before Caesar adopted him? He was your garden-variety nephew in a prominent family. But then he was adopted in a new family. His status completely changed. Then he was in line for the household business. He became the next Caesar. You talk about a transformation. It's once excluded from the family of God because of our sin, but because of Bethlehem and because of Good Friday, because of the resurrection, now included. Now, rather than being on the outside, we are included by God in the inside. May sons and daughters of God, through his grace in this gift. So the package at the door is the gift of being adopted by God. Do you belong to him? He offered his son so that that could be. That's quite a package. That changes our status before God. We are now free. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We now have hope. Christ entered our doom, and this is not the end. His tomb is empty, and we live with such hope, and we die with such hope, and we realize such hope in our death. One season of my life, I faced a crisis. Momentarily, it felt like the whole world was uh, shutting down around me. I didn't like the place. That's not a good feeling place. I was discouraged. I faced a discouraging season, and we went away for a few days. And we came home, and when we drove up the driveway, I could see it right away. It was a package on the front porch. Andy got out of the car, and she got it. She said, well, this is addressed to you. Now, uh, think clear through this illustration. Um, I went to Cedarville College when Dave Jeremiah's dad was the father, James T. Jeremiah. He became our friend. 
because of that and other things, a few times, very few, but, you know, five or six times in my life, I've been with David Jeremiah socially. It's not like I'm a real chummy chum, and that's not the point of this illustration. That box was from David Jeremiah. It was a book that he had just published that he sent to me, and the book was, you know, a Dave Jeremiah book, and it's great. But what, I opened it up, and there was a note in there. And a friend had pitched this wilderness experience that I was walking through to him and said, hey, this is what he's going through. And he sat at his desk, and he pinned me this extraordinary note. It was actually a word of hope. It was a word of encouragement. It was a word of pick up your head, look unto Jesus, and in that moment, it had a transforming effect. That's what God did at Christmas. But not for a tired pilgrim of one, but for Adam's humanity. Don't allow the crisis of COVID or any other crisis we are captured by to diffuse our focus. Let it still be, oh, come. Let us adore him. Christ was born in a crisis and gives all who will embrace him enduring and eternal hope. Let's pray. Father, humanity can't live without hope. And um, try as we do to fill our lives with everything else, it's just miserable. There's something glorious about living with hope. And that's what we get when we live with Jesus. As we come to this Advent, Lord, let us afresh come to you. Father, if there are people here who've never received Christ as their Savior, disclose yourself to them. Come, visit your people this Christmas. Encourage our hearts. Come, we're tired. We don't prefer life as it is in the middle of this pandemic. We're facing stuff in this broken world. Come. Come. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Visit us afresh. And then let us go. Driven as people of hope, shaping the environments where God has placed us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.